The Good Nature podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Nature, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. We know these are quite hard times and you know everyone needs to have a bit of a pick-me-up also. We're hoping that this conversation will inspire you. Hey everyone, today we're really excited to be with Caroline Heckman. Caroline is a lecturer at the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath and she is a psychotherapist looking into issues such as eco-anxiety and she's also worked with young people for 25 years so she's had a very long career working with with children and other young people. She's also a member of the Climate Psychology Alliance so she's been on the executive committee of that since 2009 and she is a podcaster herself so she has a podcast called Climate Crisis Conversations Catastrophe or Transformation so you can look that up if you enjoy the conversation today which I'm sure you will. So one thing that you might not know about Caroline is that she is doing a PhD in education at the University of Bath and she's researching children and young people's relationship with nature and feelings about the climate and the ecological crisis, both in the UK, the Maldives and the South Pacific as well. So she's basically really looking at communities that are already affected by issues like rising sea levels and seeing how climate change is really impacting on them. We really wanted to talk to Caroline because this term of eco-anxiety has been in the news a lot lately, right? And I think that it's becoming a lot more widespread in the public's understanding of uh, environmental issues. Yeah, and that's definitely a topic that we really wanted to dive in because, you know, as Sophia just said, it seems like more and more people are experiencing it. And we've seen lots of young people taking to the streets and really, you know, protesting to get the governments to act for climate change, but also kind of expressing this grief and this despair that they have in terms of their future when it comes to climate change. So we were really keen on having a bit more background and a bit more info about that specific topic. So you might be a little surprised to be hearing from an expert on grief on an optimism podcast, but part of optimism is recognizing the situation that you're in and being able to accept these kind of harder feelings or work through them. And a lot of Caroline's work is about that. And actually, Caroline is going to give us various tips to explain how we can use that eco-anxiety to then, you know, do various things through our work and our careers. So, you know, keep listening to find out what these tips are. Hi, Caroline. Just to start us off, do you think you could tell us a little bit about what eco-anxiety means? Sure. Um, I suppose first I would say it's not actually a new condition. It's been around for 40, 50 years really, but very niche. Originally perhaps only being really experienced by climate scientists, conservationists, environmentalists, activists, 
who were knowledgeable about the sort of deteriorating state of the world and increasingly becoming anxious and increasingly becoming anxious that despite sort of raising the alarm and producing research on this, that they weren't really being listened to. So the anxiety was certainly located in that very specific group 40, 50 years ago. Now we're seeing it widespread. We're seeing it go into the public domain. We're seeing broader groups of people become aware. Members of the public who perhaps have always had a bit of an interest in conservation or environmental activism, but now are feeling extreme anxiety. So that's the first thing, is to give you that kind of historical sense of it. The, first, the other thing to say really early on is that it's not just anxiety. I think anxiety is the gateway emotion. As you become aware of the sort of deteriorating state of the world and the planet, and as you see the news in the Amazon in Australia, the floods in Indonesia, then you're going to become anxious. You can't not become anxious. It's a quite emotionally healthy response to what's going on in the world when you look at it. But as you become anxious, then you're going to move towards other feelings, perhaps fear, perhaps anger, perhaps frustration, perhaps a kind of disbelief that the government doesn't seem to be doing something or people don't seem to be doing something. And accompanying that can be a whole range of feelings like depression and despair and grief and loss. I think there's a lot of loss for people, particularly when they think about extinction of, of the species. And then often I often hear in parents a lot of guilt and shame and a lot of sense that actually we should have done something sooner. And they're particularly feeling that in relation to their children and younger people. And particularly with the youth activists kind of saying, you know, we need to act now, this is urgent. And then feeling like nothing is really being done. So when people talk about eco-anxiety, it, it really isn't just anxiety. It is absolutely emotionally healthy response to what's going on in the world. It's not a pathology. It's not a mental illness. It's a, a, it's a sign of empathy and compassion as well. That people who care will inevitably feel some anxiety. What you don't want is for people to get stuck in that anxiety. Um, so I don't want it to sound like I'm saying it's a brilliant thing because obviously you don't want people to kind of suffer too much. And so what you need, we need to be doing is talking to people about how to process those complex feelings and move through the anxiety, but through the kind of other more complex feelings like depression or despair and loss towards action. That There is a way through that, but you can't leap straight from anxiety to activism or action. That's bypassing the more deeper complex feelings. If we kind of miss out on those deeper, sadder feelings, then what often happens as well is people burn out. So you have people, kind of environmental activists, who kind of just get disillusioned and despairing and exhausted and burn out quite quickly because they kind of think quite reasonably and rationally, you know, if we tell people the truth and we give them the data and we give them the science and we give them the evidence, people will take action. But of course, they're feeling really confused that people aren't taking action. That's really interesting. And actually, I think that's something that activists are getting more and more aware of. And I think these discussions around burnout and, you know, how you can take care of your mental health as well are taking place more and more commonly within the activism spheres. So I was just wondering, you've been working as a psychotherapist for almost 25 years. And what exactly triggered your interest in the whole topic of like climate change and eco-anxiety? Well, I was always obsessed with Jacques Cousteau when I was a child. So I was always just fascinated by the underwater world and always wanted to learn to dive, and I did. I learned to scuba dive. 
and then became a diving instructor and I worked in Egypt for two years. What I started to notice was the change because I was spending every day underwater. I was really noticing the impact on the corals, the impact on the fish. And because that, that was my day-to-day -day environment, it, it started to really show me how much things were changing. Before that, I'd been environmentally aware, but I hadn't really, living in the UK, I hadn't really, and in London at the time, I hadn't really noticed what was happening. So I was aware, but not aware. And it, we talk about that as a kind of disavowal, as a defense in psychotherapy terms, where you're sort of aware of things with one part of your mind, and you can kind of dismiss them with the other part of your mind. So you think, oh yeah, this is getting bad, but okay, it's not that bad yet, right? So you're able to kind of push away some of that alarm and that concern. And then 20 something years ago, I was embedded underwater for over two years and then it really came home to me. And I came back to the UK and went back to work as a psychotherapist um, and then thought, no, I need to do something. I'd also been speaking with people out in Egypt um, about what they were noticing and feeling quite alarmed and quite anxious about what we were doing to our marine environment and thinking, well, actually, we're culpable. In the West, we're culpable. And we just kind of turn a blind eye to this. And actually, we need to be talking more about this, but also about the emotional impact. So I realised I could make a difference bringing the psychology into that environmental awareness. And I found the Eco Psychology Group, and then I found the Climate Psychology Alliance Group, which was a wonderful because you suddenly feel there's other people having the same conversations, sharing the same concerns. And then you realise you can be useful, that there's ways that you can be useful as a psychotherapist to this. And then I started researching six years ago how young people um, and children feel about the climate emergency. Because, interestingly, at the time, a few people said to me six years ago, that's a bit niche, nobody's going to be that interested in that, right? Um, obviously, the world's changed a bit in the last five, six years. So there's been a rapid speed of awareness, of change, of understanding. And maybe six years ago when I started this, it was only small groups that would have been interested. And now today, everybody's interested, pretty much. So that's been my kind of journey. Now I think of myself as a climate psychologist or a climate psychotherapist. I help the Climate Psychology Alliance develop therapeutic support. We're running workshops for teachers, for counsellors and therapists to enable them to start to develop a climate-aware practice as therapists, to start to meet the psychological needs of the population. So it's gone from research back into practice. So a lot of my individual psychotherapy work now is with adults um, and groups and with young people helping them deal with their own eco-anxiety but also helping them deal with thing, feelings like grief and guilt and helping parents learn how to talk to their children and support their children so it's really evolved into a kind of whole practice that's fascinating because like. i i kind of assume that you know you started with the psychology aspect and then got into everything that was kind of linked to the environment and the climate, but it's actually completely the opposite. You really came through first this understanding of environmental challenges and and then got into it. That's that's just so interesting. I think I think yeah. sort of eco-psychology is, is really interesting to a lot of psychotherapists who from childhood have had a sort of natural leaning towards the environment and the natural world. So I think a lot of children grow up with that inherent empathetic 
relationship with animals and with the environment and don't necessarily kind of disconnect from it. And then as you kind of grow up, people either kind of tell you to be quiet about it because you can be a bit ashamed around it or you become, I think, you you turn it into your career, right? So you kind of become an environmentalist, you become a natural scientist because that's what's at the centre of your world. But there's a lot of people, I think, for whom, like myself, it becomes slightly on the side, but it's always been there. And then if we can find ways to bring it back in later, I think we do. And certainly eco-psychology and climate psychology really allows us to kind of integrate those those things. So it means you're practicing in a much more holistic way. So it means that psychotherapy is not just about the individual. It's about the individual in relation to their environment. Because, you know, anxiety is not just an individual problem. It's also a concern about the environment. People are coming in talking to me as much about their grief about the fires in Australia as they are about their concerns about their marriage. So they're moving between personal concern to environmental, global, uh, collective concern and back again. So I think people are kind of shifting a lot um, in the way they're learning to talk about this um, and feeling less isolated because the more we talk about it the more people are given permission to talk about it and then they they feel better because they think oh I'm not the only one that is feeling terrible grief because of the koala bears but actually maybe I don't want to sound over optimistic but I do think there is something transformational and positive and optimistic about the fact this is giving us opportunities to heal some of those splits in this relationship with the environment and the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis isn't giving us many gifts, but maybe that is one. Based on everything you've been saying, it seems really important for conservationists to integrate both this rational and this emotional side. So why is that important and how can we do it? So the reason we need to have the head and the heart working together is because wisdom lies in the middle of those two. And if you think of those two as incompatible, Think of them as like oil and water. And if you put oil and water or oil and vinegar in a bottle together and shake it, they'll separate out. But if you put sugar or honey into that mix and shake it, it'll emulsify. So wisdom in the middle of the head and the heart is compassion and kindness and understanding. We need to have deep kindness and compassion and understanding for each other but also extend that compassion and empathy and understanding for the others, the other species, the natural world, who are disenfranchised, who don't have a voice, and who cannot show us their suffering. I mean, they do show us their suffering, if we can bear to look, or if we can hear them, and if we can understand. And one of the reasons why a lot of children and young people are really feeling the, the pain of this, and why the Fridays for Future movement, the youth strikers, are really outspoken and speaking about grief and despair and anger is because they haven't separated out that sense of connection with the natural world in the same way as a lot of adults feel that they've got to. Not all adults do, but a lot do. So a lot of children, I think, are living closer to that empathetic relationship with the other, with other animals. So we shouldn't be surprised when children are really speaking out clearly about the unfairness and the injustice of what's going on in the world at the moment. 
And children haven't sort of learnt that injustice is something we all have to get used to as adults, right? Uh, and I'm so glad they haven't. And, you know, those of us that are still sort of fighting social injustice and environmental injustice, we've not forgotten either. At the moment, I've started talking to people about the need for both external activism and internal activism. You know, external activism is really important. It's absolutely essential for our sanity and to take action to save the world. But we also have to match that with an emotionally oriented internal activism where we're developing emotional resilience, we're developing emotional intelligence, we're deepening our capacity to deal with that mix of emotions that I've just been talking about. Because if we just project all of that externally out into the world, we're forgetting, we're leaving ourselves behind, number one, we're human, right? And because we're human, we're part of the world. So this isn't just something that's happening to somebody else out there. It's happening to us. And if we can feel that empathetically and compassionately, it will actually fuel our capacity to take sustainable action over the longer term. And it will help prevent burnout. It moves you into a more meaningful, deeper connection with the work that you're doing. So you can then tolerate despair, tolerate the bad days, because the bad days actually have meaning. It's, it's as important to feel determined and passionate and engaged and, you know, I'm going to deal with this, you know, to fight this as it is to collapse and sometimes feel that grief and that loss. Both are equally important. So as you said, it's a very healthy response, but at the same time, it can be very paralyzing, all that grief and that anxiety. So what tools can young people use to actually use it to move forward? Is there anything they can do? Well, first and foremost, I think you need to have somebody like me. Uh, it doesn't have to be me, but somebody like me. And I think that is the first thing that has to happen because you need to be supported in recognizing that it's not fair and that it's not your responsibility. But I think we can then start to act together. So I'm certainly speaking a lot with youth activists about how can we work together to meet with groups of young people to help educate. We're going into schools a lot. We're developing street schools, working with Greenpeace. We're supporting teachers in learning about how to work with children and bring this into schools. I'm working with teachers and schools about how to find ways to talk with even very young children about this. So what you do with young children is you don't talk about the impact on them direct, because that's going to be too scary. You talk about the impact on a creature that they love. Ask them what their favourite creature is. And then you can start to research and educate them around what impact will climate change have on that creature. And then you can kind of lead them into understanding and learning about that but not too directly. You don't want to be talking to six-year-olds about the extinction of the human species, because that is just going to be way too scary. It's pretty scary for us, right? We certainly don't want to go there with six-year-olds. But you can definitely talk to them about the pressure that other animals are feeling, but also how we work with those other animals. What makes you optimistic about the future and the role different people have to play in it? I'm really optimistic about a number of things. Certainly, watching young people find their voice, develop agency, and realize that they can make a difference is phenomenal. Watching parents come to terms with the fact that, you know, they have to shift their parenting style. 
I've been talking with groups of parents about, you know, parenting in the Anthropocene, which is not that catchy and maybe sounds a bit scary, but it's like, yeah, actually, you know, you need to parent slightly differently right now because you can't promise your children that everything will be all right because it won't be. So you can't parent in many of the ways in which you wished you could have in the past. But what you can promise your child is that you will be there with them. So I'm always optimistic about the capacity of human beings to find ways to work together creatively and to heal rifts and heal divides creatively and imaginatively and passionately and determinedly. And we often will only do that when we're really up against it. So we are, I think, really up against it right now. So, you know, I'm hoping that we find some ways through this together. Certainly the work I've been doing with the children in the Maldives has just been completely inspiring to me. And whenever I have a rotten day, I think of them and I think, oh my gosh, I, there's absolutely nothing on this earth that I should feel depressed or exhausted about. So I'll give myself a half an hour to be depressed and exhausted and miserable. And then I've got to get back up and get out there because these young people are facing this today. So I think they are inspirational. So, you know, the climate and biodiversity emergency, nobody is going to be saying, oh, this is okay that this is happening. Nobody in their right minds would say that. But I am able to hear and to feel in myself sometimes. I'm not completely sorry that this is happening because there are some good things coming out of this. I'm kind of wishing we hadn't had to go about finding those things this way. And I'm kind of hoping that we can kind of find more practical technological solutions to start to mitigate and stop some of the worst effects of this. Of course I am. And there's some reparative healing, which is global, which is cultural, which is intergenerational, which is a privilege to be part of. And it's a kind of false argument when we talk about optimism versus pessimism. I don't think either is the way forward. I think it has to be a bit of both. But actually, I don't think I don't think we need to be pessimistic. I think we need to we need to be realistic, absolutely, and that realism may sometimes be painful or depressing or difficult to bear or difficult to face. But that doesn't mean that we should throw out some optimism. In the Climate Psychology Alliance, we talk about having hope, but we talk about radical hope, and not false hope, not false hope in rescue, right? That the government will save us or you know some miracle or te just technology will save us or planting trees will save us none of those things on their own will save us and it's already too late anyway for Vanuatu and it's too late for the Maldives so we kind of have to shift out of that kind of slightly sort of narcissistically entitled western industrialized mindset that says it's only saving us that's important we've already lost other countries and we need to face the reality of that and make amends. I think another group that is really seen at the forefront of all these issues is uh, conservationists. And, you know, conservationists are trying to protect species and ecosystems that they are seeing getting degraded or disappearing in front of their eyes. So they're, they're highly impacted by all of this. Are there any ways that they can power through all that eco-anxieties to keep moving forward? The last thing I would do, and this isn't meant critically but the last thing I would do is suggest to someone they power through it that's the last thing I would do because you'll burn out and in order to do that you are cutting off those that part of yourself that feels dis 
despair and depression depression and grief and sadness and hopelessness so i would say find the power in your hopelessness find the passion and the ruthless determination in your despair and actually dig deep and because paradoxically by doing that you find the capacity for sustainable activism because that's how I generate my rage and my determination and my capacity to speak with empathy but also to speak through pain and speak through despair and that means people hear me because I will speak through those emotions and I speak as though they were mine because they are mine and it means then that your words have more impact so you don't want to split off a part of yourself just because it's painful it's a bit like trying to live your life with your left arm tied behind your back you're far more effective if you've got both your arms, if you've got two arms in the first place. You're far more effective if you are using your pain and your rage and your grief effectively. And in order to learn how to do that, well, we can support you in learning how to do that. If we bring that back to conservationists, I think as a group, you're absolutely right. I think you are on the front line. And I think you tolerate the pain far more than the vast majority of the public because you're motivated through your heart to do something to help others, help other species. So you're putting yourself in that extraordinarily painful place in order to expose yourself to the impact. And that hurts. And I personally find the impact of looking at that incredibly painful. So, you know, I think you have to learn self-compassion. You have to learn to be supported. You have to learn that your vulnerability is actually your greatest strength and your uncertainty and your grief. If you in find ways to incorporate that into your work will actually give your work more impact and more power and more people will listen to you. But you don't want it to dominate. You don't want it to take over. So you need support. So, you know, talk to the Climate Psychology Alliance. We will give free psychotherapy to conservationists who are completely trashed by the work you're doing you know so you have to find other people to help absorb that pain and that grief and that rage so that you're not having to either suppress it or deny it to keep going right or power through no don't do that turn that into your most powerful weapon right and be aware that, you know, you're just doing an amazing job, frankly, and we really need you to keep going. So speaking of conservation, this is a question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, it's a little bit cheeky or silly, but if you had to choose one organism to make a case for on this planet, what would it be and why? I'd probably save whales, but I would try and bargain with you and ask to save, save all marine species so i'd probably be trying to bargain really hard and ask for sharks whales and dolphins and turtles and triggerfish and 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 i probably can't pick one i mean it's not a hard sell with me obviously i'm a marine biologist <laughs> so i want all the marine animals to be alive thank you so much for speaking with us i think that was a really fascinating conversation about this relationship between hope and grief which needs to come first and and how they can coexist 
because we all need to try to find this delicate balance in order to be able to move forward and try to create the kind of world we would like to see. You're really welcome and thank you because it's really lovely for me as well to have the opportunity to talk about these things in this way with people who understand. So it's kind of nice from my side too. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much. We really had a great time chatting to you and you know, you've definitely given us lots of food for thoughts. What a wonderful conversation. Um, I feel like I now have a much better understanding of eco-anxiety and grief, but also the ways in which we can actually turn those maybe like harder feelings into sources of empowerment and positivity. Yeah, totally. And I think it was really interesting as well to hear about how it's actually so widespread and the fact that it's a healthy response. Because I think often in the narrative, it comes about as if it's some kind of like, almost like a pathology or a mental illness. And actually, I really like the fact that Caroline said it's a sign of empathy. It's actually a really good thing to experience. So I, I think that was that was really interesting. Absolutely. And this idea that sometimes we just need to feel the loss and the grief, right? That they're kind of storing up there, that they're totally, they're present, they're, they're kind of affecting you in a lot of ways. And that actually squashing them down is taking a lot of energy. Um, and so acknowledging them and working through them can actually get you to a much more empowered place and a place where you are much more capable. Definitely. And also the fact that, you know, compassion and kindness needs to be the link between the head and the heart when she went through through that um, that metaphor that she's used. I thought that was quite empowering as well, just knowing that we need to have compassion, not just for each other, but also for the other, which sometimes can be nature, like in some situation, adults can be seen as putting it too much as the other. And I think maintaining these links with the natural world are really important. Another aspect that I found really inspiring during our conversation with Caroline is also the fact that, as she mentioned, young people are really finding their voice. We've really seen it with the uh, Youth for Climate strikes. And that's that by itself is such an interesting development because I think there's really this group of people who are developing agencies and who are really keen on pushing governments to take action. And even at the current times where we are, you know, lots of people are stuck at home in lockdown, it's very inspiring to see that they actually keep doing the digital strikes every Fridays and that seeing that they're still keen on making a difference and really pushing in terms of climate change and what the governments need to do. Absolutely. I think having this potential for collaboration between psychologists and conservationists is really exciting. Like it's not something that we, I think, think about often enough. It's not a connection that comes up often enough, at least in my experience. But I think that it's one that can be so fruitful. Yeah, and I think we'll definitely see more connections between these two groups uh, in the future. So really looking forward to seeing how that develops. And that's it for this episode. So we really enjoyed talking to Caroline Hickman. Um, If you did as well, then you can always look up her podcast. You can look up her work. Please look up the Climate Psychology Alliance. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you want to be notified of upcoming episodes. And of course, you can also rate and review on Apple Podcasts and that helps other people find us.
This episode was funded by an ESRC Impact Acceleration Account Grant through the University of Oxford. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.